0: Engaging Leader Episode 173, Clarity First, Improve Performance by Eliminating Ambiguity, featuring Karen Martin. your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Ambiguity has become the default state for organizations of all types. It lurks in the background when leaders can't explain what success looks like, when there are uncertain or conflicting priorities, or when they can't explain what aspects of performance matter most for achieving it. Ambiguity saps energy from talented team members operating in the dark about how their work contributes to the organization's goals. Today we're talking to Karen Martin about how to eliminate the ambiguity in your organization and improve performance by starting with Clarity. Karen is an author, speaker, and president of the global consulting firm, The Karen Martin Group. She is a leading authority on lean management and performance improvement for businesses, government agencies, and nonprofits. She's the author of five books, and her newest one is Clarity First, How Smart Leaders and Organizations Achieve Outstanding Performance. Karen, welcome to Engaging Leader.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Jesse. It's great to be here.
0: Karen, what's a definition or maybe some examples of ambiguity in an organization?
1: Yeah. So, ambiguity to me, I call it the fog. <laughs> it's just this just general, you know, it's the opposite of clarity. And so, it ranges from an organization and its people not really understanding the true, true purpose of the organization to not understanding how the organization is really performing, not how people think it's performing or wish it performed, but how it really is performing to how the work is done. There's a lot of um, ambiguity around the actual tasks that deliver value to customers. Customers um, to who the customer actually is sometimes is a, a point of ambiguity um, to the way people approach problems and and how they aren't um, taking the time to get very very clear on the problem first and the, then the root cause for the problem before they start trying to you know get solutions in place. It's it's pretty rampant. It's actually quite a common organizational disease.
0: It seems like some organizations just accept ambiguity as, it's just as today's reality in the new economy or something like that. Why, why do some organizations accept that?
1: Yeah, you know, it is interesting how when you get used to a certain way of being, it's hard to imagine another way of being. And what complicates this whole thing with ambiguity is that people sometimes get uncertainty and ambiguity confused. So we're in a very uncertain world. I mean, there's just, you know, we're, it, well, I guess it always was a little uncertain, but it seems like it's becoming increasingly uncertain. But that doesn't mean it has to be ambiguous. You can actually work through and get clear about uncertainty. Certainty and be able to move an organization ahead, um, and so they're not the same.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I was—I thought you were going to say that ambiguity—the opposite of ambiguity being clarity—that that it's okay that clarity and flexibility are not in contrast with each other, and so you—it's okay to be embrace flexibility, but but don't let yourself get bogged down in ambiguity. <laughs>
1: Um, I would yeah I agree with you I, th- I think clarity and flexibility can coexist um, but you have to design the flexibility clearly into whatever the work or decision-making model is um, and it and it abs- you have to have flexibility in today's world but it, it you know what happens is you know people I think sometimes believe they can't get clear about the level of flexibility they need to build into the operation and they also believe that flexibility is um necessarily means it's an ambiguous work environment and it's not it doesn't have to be it actually can't be if you want to perform at top levels it can't be an ambiguous work environment
0: so even though there's uncertainty it doesn't mean we have to be muddled in conflicting priorities or confusion
1: correct yeah i think you know when there's an uncertain Situation going on, then you know people have to be kind of dogged at going after you know the facts and being more diligent in gathering facts, and then you know making much more well-informed decisions and prioritizing with well-informed uh, facts. And so you know this is what clarity is about—you know, stopping this whole assumption and biases and what we think and what we feel and 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 getting more fact-based.
0: So, from an organizational or leadership perspective, how, how do you define clarity?
1: Clarity, how, how clarity feels, is it's um, more precise, it's more coherent, it's more elegant. And it's very, very close to the truth. It, you know, there can be a little bit of kind of rough around the edges there, but it's, you know, the facts and the truth and reality is what creates a very clear environment, you know, clear communication, for example. You know, if you're um, elegant in how you ask for something and, and you just you know get your – get the the noise out of the message and work hard. And it does take work, by the way, to be clear. It, it takes a lot more work than being ambiguous because you have to think and you have to be purposeful and be present and all those things that are tough in a noisy world that we're in. But, you know, it's, it's just an easier way. Once that hard work is done, it's so much easier and more respectful of the other people when you're able to operate within that environment of clarity.
0: You mentioned truth. And in the book, you talk about how clarity requires seeking and telling the truth hmm. but it 's interesting, as you point out in the book, that some organizations actually fear or otherwise avoid communicating the truth. Why is that
1: Well, there are a lot of reasons. Um, fear is that, you know the under the kind of the underpinnings of it all, and why that fear exists if we start looking at those root causes sometimes it 's You know, people are punished, and people have seen people being punished for telling the truth. And so, you know, we're an amazing, adaptable species, (laughs) human beings. And so, you know, you see someone getting punished for telling the truth or or seeking the truth. You know, it's pretty quickly you're gonna get people doing behavior modification to not do that. Um, The other thing is incentives. Incentivization is a huge problem in business because we incent people through implicit or explicit rewards and penalties to behave a certain way. So it's like, you know, be careful what you incent because you're going to get what you're incenting. Um, So that's another part of it. You know, the other thing is this, you know, chop, chop, fast, 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 fast environment that we're in. You know, I always say go slow to go fast. If you're more methodical, you can actually accelerate everything. But what happens when you go fast, 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 and you're not thinking clearly and getting clear information is then you just have a bunch of rework you have to do. So there's there's all this. It all ties back to fear, though. It all comes back to fear.
0: And fear is often rooted in a sort of self-preservation kind of instinct.
1: Yes. And, you know, so just a quickie on, you know, the big, big, big levels of fear is, you know, private, or I'm sorry, publicly traded organizations, you know, they've got such pressure to perform every quarter that they make, you know, kind of silly decisions a lot of the time in order to get their quarter numbers where they need to be. They're not long-term, you know, focused decisions. And so they get themselves into this kind of, you know, Spinning rat rat on the treadmill because they're never going to be able to build the organization that really has the strength to to persevere over the long haul because they're so focused on quarterly numbers and I get it I mean I get what that pressure is like I've been there but it's you know it's it's again fear that the sh- you know stakeholders shareholders are going to punish the organization and take their money elsewhere and so it's it's fear is a pretty powerful draw.
0: Well, I want to get into, so what do we do about all this? But one last question before we kind of move on to the solutions is just the pitfalls of not not relying on truth and not setting a clear foundation. Can you tell us, I mean, we should be very clear about that. There really are pitfalls that ambiguity <laughs> really is a problem and <laughs> getting into these fears uh, and accepting ambiguity is definitely not the right way to go.
1: No, definitely not. So I'm going to swing two ways. I'm going to go all the way to the spiritual realm, and then I'll go into the financial space. So at a spiritual realm, when people aren't clear about what they should be doing and why they're doing it and what the organization's trying to achieve and what this email really means and what's the purpose of this meeting, I mean, I could go on and on and on. When they're not clear about that, it It brings in lack of confidence because, you know, and I've always said confidence builds competence or breeds competence. And so it just creates this unease in individuals. And when you get a whole workforce (laughs) that are uneasy about stuff, that's, you're never going to deliver the kind of value you otherwise could. And so, so that's, it's, it's a spiritual problem and it's a soul sapping problem to have people working in a, a highly ambiguous environment. So that's the spiritual side. Do you want to? You want to? Yep, let's hear the Talk anymore? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So on the financial side, it's just it's pure numbers. I mean, when you have ambigu- ambiguous, ambiguous, um, say customer requirements or ambiguous focus on why we're doing a project or whatever it might be, people waste a lot of flipping time, a lot of time, and that's not productive use of people, and it's not a respectful use of their skills, and their talents, and their potential. And so it is, you know, it is a an expensive place to be. Um, and while clarity can sometimes be painful and it, it can require a little bit of upfront work, it always ends up being the more efficient way to operate and you know, also a, a more um, respectful way of operating. So it's it costs a lot of money to have ambiguity.
0: Your entire career working with hundreds of clients has been primarily focused on lean transformation and important and performance improvement, and so I'm guessing that which is which is all about re- eliminating waste from processes and I, I'm guessing that ambiguity is a huge part of that waste
1: well actually it's interesting how lean the understanding of lean is is you know, all these years later, it's been over 20 years now is we're finally understanding what lean management really is. And it goes so much further than the waste and process design elements that we first saw when lean hit U.S. soil, um, you know, everyone thought that it's all it was was process design and removing waste. But when you think about it, you know, waste is anything that keeps an organization from performing at high levels. And so, waste could be process design, but waste is also, you know, not respecting employees. It's it's also or work team, you know, team members. Or you know, I don't want to get into the PC on what do you call the people that work <laughs> for a company and get a paycheck. I mean, that, we could go on and on on that one. But it's you know. Waste has many, many shapes and forms. And waste is spending time and money on building a product that nobody wants. You know, waste is pricing a product that nobody will buy. Um, and so there, it, it really is far beyond just like, you know, industrial engineering kinds of, of thinking. Um, and, it's, and it's again, it's costly. Waste is very, very costly.
0: One of the things I loved in the book was the yes no test for assessing your team's clarity or just anybody on your team can you tell us about that
1: i love this so i started noticing probably seven years ago it was when i was writing the outstanding organization that when i would ask a binary question that should be could be answered with yes or no that nobody could do it they, they just <laughs> would not say yes or no and then explain and so i started doing all i love experiments so i you know how and I always had these great teams to experiment with. It's a living laboratory. <laughs> so, you know, I would, you know, just really start asking more and more questions that could be, should be answered with yes or no. And and then started using it as a way to heighten people's awareness that they're, you know, couching and framing and caveating. And, and it's all, again, back to fear. And, you know, to get teams to be able to commit to a position quickly and, to, and then caveat it. And just, just you know, I, I hear all these answers when I'll ask a question. I say, "Well, la, la la la," and I'll say, "Was that a yes?" <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like a lot of work. Or was that a no? Um, and so, but again, it comes back to people being afraid to be to commit to that position for fear something's going to happen to them. And, um, and, and it, we form these habits that, you know, one of my biggest jobs and one of my biggest purposes of writing the book is to heighten awareness to the problem in the first place and then get people to do something about it if they're, if they're so motivated.
0: So quick, easy way to take the pulse of your team on whether or not they have clarity is, uh, is to just frame, ask them a question that clearly should give, provide a yes or no answer.
1: Yes, and and one thing I should caveat this is that this this – Part of the conversation will probably make people that are in the coaching space, their skin crawl because you know, we spend so much time <laughs> in coaching talking about don't ask closed-ended questions. Right. You know, only ask Socratic, you know, open-ended questions, and that's true. But with the, but there are times where binary questions are absolutely called for when you're trying to get clarity. And the fact that people can't answer them doesn't mean the question's a bad question. It means that you've got an ambiguity, you know, kind of culture that you want to work through. And you, you absolutely want to work through it. You want people to start feeling comfortable and able to say yes or no. You know, did 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 customer ABC get the get the shipment on time? Yes or no. There's no other answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes or no. Um, instead of well, da, 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 and then the UPS, and you know, you, you just hear all this stuff because everyone's afraid to commit to the position.
0: Yeah. So listen to it, and then if if, if and then asks a, uh... So is that a yes? Is that a no? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and give them permission to start. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I kind of grew up in a very frank, direct environment culturally. Um, and so I, I know I have a little bit of an edge here on this, but in, you know, as you go to the South, people have a more difficult time with this. The Northeast tends to be a little more comfortable and enjoy the whole clarity thing. But ultimately, everybody can move the needle toward clarity, more clarity from wherever they are. Um, and it, you know, it just, it frees up psychic energy and, and, you know, it frees up a lot of energy to be able to perform at higher levels. And if you look at any other activity, you know, sports and music and arts and all these things, you know, people that perform at high levels are incredibly clear, incredibly
0: clear. Hmm. Okay. So let's say our listeners are following our conversation and they are convinced, my gosh, we do have an, Im- we're, we're, we're stuck in ambiguity. What do we do to get out of that? How do we start creating better clarity for our organization?
1: Yeah, so at a team level, at a very small team level, it's by starting to ask those questions and talking about how people are responding and, you know, kind of surfacing the problem in the first place and saying, you know what, I feel like we have a lot of ambiguity here. Let's work toward this. Um, So you can do it just conversationally in small teams. I'm going to swing all the way to the organizational level and, you know, visual management is a big part of the lean management philosophy and getting, you know, how an organization is performing out on walls instead of hidden in computers and getting, you know, progress of projects and things like that on walls and starting to get and get people comfortable with seeing where there's slippage and, and being able to have candid conversations about that and not have it be a punishment kind of thing is a pretty big organizational transformation from an organizational psychology perspective. Um, and so that can help quite a bit as well.
0: So, Karen, tell us about the six P's when we're thinking about what are all the different ways that we should start building organizational clarity.
1: Yes. So the, the six P's and is basically how the content is organized in the book is around purpose, priorities, process, performance, problem solving, and people. And so the, five, the first five of those P's are organizational clarity, and then the sixth one, people, is about individual leadership levels of clarity. And, and they, they, you need both. You know, Obviously, if you have unclear leaders, you're not going to get organizational clarity, and it's hard for a leader to function clearly when they're in a very ambiguous organizational environment, so you need both.
0: So can you break those down for us a little bit? What's the quick definition of those?
1: Yes. So with purpose, it's just getting very, very clear about why the organization exists, not what it does, which most organizations are pretty quick to be able to answer, but why it does it. What's the real mission of the organization? I don't mean mission statement. I mean, why was the organization founded in the first place? And what problem, which what, what customer problem is that organization there to solve? On the priorities, most organizations, you know, just are like the pinball machine where the little ball is going bing, 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 bing all <laughs> over the place. And um, and there's no way people can perform at high levels in that environment. So it's getting very, very clear. Once you get clear on why the organization exists, then you can get much more clear on what do you need to do this year, not next year, not five years, but this year, what do you need to do in order to move the needle toward um, being you know, true um, true to that purpose? The next one is once you get your priorities set, then how do you actually design processes so that you can achieve those priorities and you can you know, operate at high, high levels within the organization? And most organizations don't have their processes well-documented, well-defined, or, and if they have anything in writing, it's not current and it's kind of a mess. <laughs> so, um, And it's very foundational and it's not necessarily joyous to do. It's not like product development is kind of fun and sexy, but if... if... If you don't have it, it's pretty hard to perform at high levels. Then after that is performance. So how are you actually performing? And this is where organizations often focus far too much on just financial performance and not on how the customer experience really is and how the employee experience really is. And that's, that's where and the operational performance is what is much more important to being able to provide value, which will then generate the financial results. So you, you, you kind of have to start with the operation, and then you'll get the results, mm. more likely to get the results you're looking at. Looking for, and then uh, the last one, problem solving on the organizational front. Organizations are pretty poor generally at problem solving unless they've gone through a pretty, you know, significant effort to indoctrinate the whole organization into disciplined problem solving. And so you end up getting lots of, you know, band aids and. And solutions that work temporarily, or big spends like big capital being spent to put a new ERP system in that doesn't even begin to solve the problem you thought it would. <laughs> you know, so you know those kinds of things. So problem solving is key, and and it's the number one way to develop people as well. Then there's the individual, and for the individual, p you know mindfulness and being uh, more reflective and being able to see yourself, eventually see yourself operating with a bias um, and stopping yourself from operating with assumptions. All of that can make a leader just so much more effective um, and just clear communication and being, you know, very frank about what it is you're asking for and why and, um, you know, work, work toward that.
0: What do you mean when you say recognizing that we work from a bias?
1: So there's – now there's been something like 308 official biases that have been identified that are, you know, ways of thinking that enter into our brain because of experience and history and all kinds of things that make us believe something is true that actually isn't. And so, you know, biases are helpful. It helps us kind of, you know – distill a lot of information we're getting and and figure out a a simpler way to deal with all this information, but they get you into a lot of trouble too. And so the more you can be clear that you're starting to, you know, for example, I might have a bias that, you know, um, a team is going to behave a certain way because I've experienced that a team will behave a certain way. Well, if I start thinking that they're going to behave a certain way, that's what I'm going to see and you know frankly that's what they may do and so you have to get clearer clearer about what it is you're trying to do and be clear that you're operating with a bias in order to allow the facts to actually emerge
0: so if you can be aware and mindful about that bias and maybe just even sometimes when appropriate be upfront about it with other people it can you you can sort of neutralize the bias and and cause it to not as, not negatively influence what's happening in your leadership
1: yeah so the the thing that's interesting about biases is if you get the combination of awareness which comes from mindfulness and reflection and all that with an, a desire to be clear and to use fact-based decision making then you're far more able to say like literally I will say in conversation you know blah blah blah, blah, blah. oh wait a minute that's my bias talking you know like I actually mm-hmm. can call it um and, and when you can call it, then you can do something about it. It's, it's being kind of blind to it that isn't good. And so you need to start by reading about biases in order to know what they actually are and then start recognizing them, which you can't do if you have a noisy mind. You know, that's why you need to operate in a more mindful way to be able to see them at play.
0: I'd like to ask you a little bit about priorities and then about problem solving. Okay. So priorities is about defining what matters now. And Correct. we talked earlier about the need to be flexible and how we're in an uncertain world and things are, are constantly changing. And it seems like there's a a problem in a lot of organizations with priorities being muddled, which we sort of already touched on, but also just even changing on a dime. And so how yeah. do you, it seems like the, the, the more, I, I'm guessing with a lot of leaders, the reason why they don't create clarity about priorities is because the priorities seem to change. Their own, they show up at work and they never even know what they're themselves going to be working on that day. So how do you balance this uh, need for clarity with the need for flexibility in, in the face of a changing economic environment, for example, or Ugh. let's say if you're the head of a division and the CEO creates a change that affects the whole company? What do
1: you do? Yeah, great question because it, it is a very you know, dynamic world that we live in. So, the priorities that I'm talking about aren't necessarily the daily daily priorities, although everyone needs to be clear about their their priorities as a leader also. But what, you know, what I think you're alluding to is this whole kind of the project, we're going to work on this project. Oh, let's abandon that. Let's work <laughs> on this. So, oh, mm-hmm. let's do, let's go work on this. So, in reality, The number of times that that level of prioritization needs to be altered – to meet changing conditions is actually pretty small. Mm. So if you set annual priorities, there's a whole process that we use called, it's called strategy deployment, and everyone always thinks, well, we were doing that because we have a strategy <laughs> and we're deploying, <laughs> we're, we're doing something. But strategy deployment is a very methodical way to limit the priorities up front and then stick with them unless there's something very, very significant that happens you know, externally to the organization or internally. And that that number of times that something really significant. Significant happens is not all that it's not all that frequent even though people think it is and so you get you get very very clear about the most essential things and then there's a management part of that that you have to it's like discipline you have to abide by it so that you're not constantly looking at the new shiny object and and you know taking resources from one area to another area you know there it Again, the times you have to do that are actually rare if you look at the high-level priorities an organization is setting for itself. Daily priorities, a little more flexibility needed. But big organizational priorities, no. So They need, they need to be stable.
0: Gotcha. So that's really helpful. So as a, as a leader, we really need to be self-aware and, and, and manage our own impulses to switch, switch up priorities on people
1: yeah there's you know there's uh the original research David Meyer did at uh University of michigan your your backyard <laughs> sort of um you know he was the one that first started you know coined the term um, task switching <laughs> and he Kind of debunked the the multitasking myth, and then there were a couple of books written on that that were really good. And so what he did was he's you know studied engineers switching tasks several times during the day and how much mental ramp up there is to to actually get your mind back on what you were doing and the productivity loss of having to do that. And then you take that multiplied times you know ten team members on a project and the and they meet once a week. They've got the same issues and it really as a product is a productivity drain a monumental productivity drain and quality sapper. So the other problem with the switch tasking um, or task switching is that it it typically results in lower quality. And so, you know, once you get people to understand, there's a, a simulation we do that's super easy and it just so clearly shows that, you know, when you can focus, it's a much better output and much higher quality and much more work gets done than the switching back and forth and back and forth and back and forth.
0: Yeah, I love it. And when you have worked in both sort of environments, you uh, you do realize how much better and more effective you are when you can focus. The work is more enjoyable and you do much better work.
1: Well, yeah. And, you know, it's, get back to that spiritual component of all this, you know, the the people that at my client level, you know, when I get into the frontline to middle managers, because we usually work with senior leaders, but when we get access to and work with front lines and middle managers, the number one complaint always and forever is, what are we supposed to be doing here? Come on, people. We're, (laughs) you know, we're doing this project and that project, then that one gets pulled, then we do this. I mean, there you know, it's like we've met the enemy and it is us, you know, as leaders. And so it, you really have to look at, you know, conserving and, and, Leveraging the energy and the creative potential that people have and instead of draining it for, for, through all this back and forth and switching priorities
0: let's talk a little bit uh, more about problem solving. Where hmm. do you get started to help a t- your team create a, a disciplined method for solving problems. <sighs>
1: Yeah, good question. So there are lots of methodologies out there. There's, you know, I'm going to rattle off my alphabet soup of um, of history <laughs> of, of problem solving. There's PDCA, PDSA, DMAIC. There's Ford's 8D. There's TBP. There's all these OODA. There's all these different methodologies, and um and they're all good if people really understand what's behind each of those letters in those acronyms. So what I've developed because I think that people aren't clear about what's behind each of those letters of the acronym, it's not explicitly stated often, is a question, a like a linear questioning process that helps you work through problem solving that is also iterative. So, you know, just it's, I call it clear problem solving, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, clear, and so it's C-L-E-A-R, so it's clarify, learn, experiment, assess, and then roll out. And then within each of those there's a series of of finer questions. So for clarify you you know I basically say to teams you've got to answer these questions. What's the problem? For whom is it a problem? How significant is the problem meaning how frequent or how large is it? What are the problem components? Most problems are complex. So what are the different components? And then which part which parts are you going to focus on and why? So by forcing people to kind of you know, think through this methodically, you're able to get people much, much more clear on what the problem actually is versus what they think it may be. And, and that's, the, that's the key. I mean, the, if you don't get clear at the C level, it's really hard to get good problem solving anywhere down the line.
0: So this is uh, you. You, at this point, you might do other exercises as part of that, like five whys or, or or other exercises to to get down to the root causes.
1: Yeah, there there's a whole kind of you know set of different tools you can use. There's some simple root cause analysis tools, and then there are ones that are you know more well suited for complex problems with multiple root causes. So you know there's a couple of main ones that people know five whys for simple problems, and if they know. Um, Fishbone analysis for brainstorming the root causes of a problem. And then Pareto analysis for actually quantifying the root causes and figuring out which ones are the, the, the biggest contributors. Those are simple ones. That doesn't work for all problems, but it works for a good 85% of the problems that an organization faces. Hmm.
0: And then what's the – tell us about LEARN
1: so learn is the just getting very very deep into the details behind the problem once you know what the problem is so that's where root cause would fit in and it's also where you would do you know some clearer data gathering to get facts not what people think not what people believe but what actually is um, is it's fascinating how many people think that a problem is blah 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 and you go and you get the facts that something else so an example was we were working with the hospital Monday through Wednesday this week, and they thought that of all the patients that came into the emergency department, that about, what was the number they said? They said, I think, 70% of the patients had a, a CBC, a complete blood count. You know what it was? What? 30. Oh. Oh. And you know, so and that that comes with just not getting the facts. And so and it's a huge difference in how you approach a problem, especially with that kind of, of difference. And then we were working with an um, an IT a tech firm and they said that they had twenty one thousand IT tickets a month. It was thirty five thousand when we got the data because they weren't counting two additional sources where tickets came in. Wow. You know, and, and that, I mean, they were staffed for 21,000, not 35. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and so, you know, it's just, you know, being kind of a, like, I love investigation. The whole, the whole team does. That's why we do what we do. But, you know, to be able to do that investigation and get more clear on the truth of what's going on, it's very powerful. It's liberating.
0: Well, I think that's a really helpful acronym, CLEAR, clarify, learn, experiment, assess, and roll out. And I think I think for the sake of time, we'll we'll let our listeners uh, grab the book to get explanations of the the rest of clear. But um, and 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 gosh, there's so much more in the book, Clarity First, that I would love to get into. But uh, Karen, can you tell us besides getting the book, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: Yeah, so we have a website, KS as in Sue, so ksmartin.com. And I have a whole library of free webinars that we've given over the years. And there's a lot of recommended reading. And and there's a lot of, it's a very content heavy website. So I encourage people to go there. And then also uh, we have an assessment that's not live yet. It should be done by the end of March, maybe early April, that people can actually take online. It's also free to assess the level of clarity they operate with and their organizations do. And so they can get to that assessment through uh, clarityfirstbook.com.
0: Wonderful. And so in addition to the helping companies with strategy deployment uh, and full lean transformation and targeted improvement, uh, is is there any other services that our folks should, should know about?
1: Well, we just are starting mindfulness um, as a service line. And there's a woman, Elizabeth Prather, who has joined my team, who's a very, very seasoned uh, meditation teacher. And so, you know, corporate meditation programs are pretty rampant right now. And a lot of the big, you know, Fortune 100 companies and 50 companies even are are looking at bringing mindfulness to their leadership teams so that they can learn to focus and, and operate with a clearer mind. And it's, you know, proving out to be quite effective for a leadership team to do that. So I'm really excited about that service and she's very, very seasoned and I I know her work very well. So I'm very excited about that.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. Well, we will put the uh, links to that Karen mentioned and her social media information on our show notes to this episode. Karen, thanks so much for joining us on Engaging
1: Leader. Thank you so much, Jesse. This was really fun. You asked great questions. Thank you. Really fun. Thank you.
0: All right, Engagers, the book again is Clarity First, How Smart Leaders and Organizations Achieve Outstanding Performance. And you can find those links in social media for Karen Martin on our show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 173 as in episode 173. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. In several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, J.J. Leahy, our social media guru, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.